0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the ABIP podcast. I'm Abhinav Agrawal, an assistant professor of medicine at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. During the podcast episodes, we discuss unique and often controversial topics in IP. The topics discussed often do not have high-quality evidence base, and we seek the opinion of our invited experts to learn their approach to specific clinical scenarios. The views expressed are exclusively those of the speaker and not necessarily endorsed by the AABIP. Massive hemoptysis is variably defined in existing literature. I personally consider massive hemoptysis as hemoptysis that needs an immediate intervention and not one that can wait until tomorrow. Management of every case of massive hemoptysis should be individualized, depending on the patient's clinical status, respiratory reserve, resources at our disposal, and the suspected etiology of hemoptysis. This includes lateral decubitus on the affected side, achieving good IV access. Preparing for endotracheal intubation with monitoring in an ICU setting and correcting any underlying cardiopathy, as general measures, we must practice in every scenario. In today's podcast, I will be picking the brains of our guest, Abdul Hamil Al-Rais, to understand his approach to this fairly common but yet scary diagnosis, with a focus on scenario-specific management. Abdul A. B. Al-Rais is associate professor of medicine at the Rosalind Franklin University in Chicago and an interventional pulmonologist. Welcome, AB, and thank you for taking our time from a busy schedule to join us. Thank you, Abby, and uh, thank you for giving me
1: the opportunity to discuss uh, this important topic. And uh, thank you for audit for all the work and good work you do together.
0: Thank you for your kind words. So let's dive deep, and I think we should start with a couple of clinical scenarios of patients with massive hemoptysis. So let's consider a patient, two patients rather, both with a cavitary lesion in the right upper lobe. Patient one is coughing up blood but is not in respiratory distress and does not need any supplemental oxygen. Patient two, on the other hand, has a respiratory rate of 25 and needs six liters per minute oxygen via nasal cannula. So AB, keeping in mind both these scenarios, could you please share with us your threshold to intubate a patient with massive hemoptysis? Thank you, Avi. This is a very good question. And uh, that uh,
1: reflects more on the definition, how we define massive hemoptysis. Uh, it's a classic that the amount of blood come out from the patient might be scary. Seeing blood is scary for every patient and they can seek uh, medical advice immediately for it. But as a physicians, we should know how we define that massive hemoptysis. Um, as we know, uh, it's not that if we see blood, that means every patient is critical, need a protective area right away. But more important to ask the patient how frequent, how much, get the quantity from them. But when oh. you see something reflecting on the vital signs, that the time you should uh, react faster on those patients. Because as much as we say, the amount of blood, not much, but depends what the blood in the airway causing. If it's causing a blockage, a clot, blocking one of them right or left main stem, and now putting the patient on distress because of that, uh, or it's causing hemodynamic instability, or at the same time, both scenarios together, those the patient not need to react faster to, to uh, for, and that's what we call the, the quantitative or uh, the, the uh, accumulative effect of hemoptysis that we need to react to and intubate. So in this scenario, the second patient who has a respiratory rate of 25 and on oxygen, that patient might be in trouble sooner and that the one we need to take a look and maybe need a faster airway protection.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, A.B., for summarizing that. So what you said basically is not we should not only be relying on the amount of hemoptysis, but looking at the patient clinically and a patient in respiratory distress is the one that needs a secure airway faster. So let's consider another couple of scenarios in patients with hemoptysis. So patient one has a cavitary lesion in the right upper lobe on a CAT scan that was done to look for the source. And but otherwise has clear lungs. The patient two has no obvious source of hemoptysis. So, A.B., what would your threshold be to bronch the patient in either situation? And could you let us know what you would want to achieve with this bronchoscopy? That's, uh, thank you, Avi. This is a very good question, too. Uh, and and uh,
1: I would use this scenario also, as you mentioned. It's like you saying that there is a patient that we know which side the blood coming from and the other one not yet we know where it's coming from. For the first patient, before even we consider the bronchoscopy, we know that the blood coming from the right side. As you mentioned in your introduction, we have to put that side lower than the left side for protection of the left lung from the blood coming from the gavitary lesion from the right lung. That's not the answer for your question about the bronchoscopy, but this is a very important maneuver that we have to think about immediately when we know where the blood coming from And we know that the blood might cause more trouble if it goes to the second lung. On the second scenario, when you say there is no clear answer from the CAT scan where the blood coming from, this is an indication for bronchoscopy. The reason for that, to know where is the source coming from. As we know from the studies from imaging, the HS X-ray can give you like 30% of localizing the cause of hemoptysis a CAT scan can reach up to 60 to 70%. And there is like 30% when you have diffuse bilateral space disease or, or a kind of infiltrates bilateral, you don't know where the blood coming from and that the patient who will benefit from bronchoscopy to isolate the side of bleeding and clear the clots from the other side so to give them better chance and
0: then proceed with the next step of management. So Abhi, we talked about intubating our patients, but the problem could be that once we intubate them and we sedate and even paralyze these patients, we're actually taking away their ability to clear the airway and protect the unaffected lobes. So as you talked about isolating the bleed, what tools do we have at our disposal to isolate the bleed? So the benefit, the benefit of having
1: the, the bronchoscopy done, it's almost diagnostic and therapeutic immediately. Mm-hmm. So, prior to taking the patient for bronchoscopy or even doing the bronchoscopy in the ICU at the bedside, make sure you have all the tools that you might need prior to the bronchoscopy. That includes uh, any blockage uh, catheters, Fogarty, uh, Arnett blocker, um, even sometimes you can use the swan guns, balloon, some. Uh, In the past, they used uh, also foley catheters, small ones, all of those were used to block the main stem of an airway where the blood coming from. The other thing that also uh, very important tool that you have uh, in your hand while you are doing the bronchoscopy of the patient intubated is the ET tube itself. It's very easy for you when you identify the uh, side of the bleeding, to selectively intubate the other lung with the ET tube directly. That will at least isolate the good lung from the blood coming from the bleeding lung. The second thing can be done then, clearing the clots from that airway to protect and ventilate the the lungs. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, Fogarty catheters are very useful, come with different sizes for different uh, uh, airways from uh, main stem bronchus to sub uh, lower uh, lower bronchus to subsegmental uh, bronchus from four five six seven branches, uh, uh, all of those can fit inside the airway and and give you an isolation for selective airways if that needed immediately Arnet uh, blocker also another option it comes in different sizes and also uh, can fit the airway that uh, bleeding, and help uh, protecting and isolating that lung, if the ET tube not an option. Uh, of course, uh, in some cases, you can use
0: uh, a double lumen tube uh, that isolates uh, the bleeding lung from the other one. So you mentioned double lumen tubes, but you know, as an intensivist, I've maybe seen a double lumen tube once or twice, I've used it in my life, and not a lot of us are trained in the use of double lumen tubes. And even uh, in a hospital, people might not be trained. So do you routinely use double lumen tubes or do you recommend using double lumen tubes? And do you think it is still a normal, regular routine practice uh, to try double lumen tubes in these patients?
1: Uh, that's a very important question. And we should highlight that uh, topic very important because people think that if I have double lumen tube in the airway, it's easy for me that to ventilate the good lung and isolate the bleeding from the other lung. But we have to remember that a double lumen tube, even during, used usually during elective surgeries for isolating and deflating the lung that the thoracic surgeon uh, uh, operating on, it takes time even in expert hands. And it has more stiff and, and it's more rigid than normal ET tube. And the third thing is the lumen inside it that has dual lumen that doesn't allow you to have the flexible therapeutic bronchoscopy to fit in either lumen. That said, meaning that number one, placing that double lumen ET tube in emergency situation might cause an airway damage more than helping because number one, you don't have a good vision and you are placing it on a bleeding patient in a a semi-emergency or emergency situation. And pushing that ET tube very uh, quick, might tear some of the airways. Second thing, you are not sure where your ET tube went. And the other thing, the, you don't know which lumen you can put that ET tube. And uh, the using the therapeutic bronchoscopy will be eliminated because the size of the uh, therapeutic bronchoscope, as I mentioned, doesn't fit in any of those lumens of the AT tube. So you have to go for a pediatric scope, which will lose the the, the
0: uh, effect or the benefit of using therapeutic bronchoscopy in those scenarios. All right, so I think we both agree that the use of double lumen tube is extremely challenging and is limited to very certain scenarios in, the, in expert hands. So you talked about bronchial blockers. You know, I've placed a few bronchial blockers uh, for hemoptysis patients, and they sometimes can be very challenging. Let's say a scenario where tr- I'm trying to maintain a bronchial blocker in the right upper lobe. Do you experience that it gets displaced, and, you know, if, do you have any tricks or tips so that it doesn't get displaced into the bronchus intermedius when transporting or moving the patient? That's
1: uh, a, a good question, Abby, because uh, it's not only that we see we have the vision when we see the uh, endobronchial blocker in the place, and we are happy that we place it in the right spot. As you mentioned, either if it's the seven uh, French that fits inside the upper lobe, if that the cause of the bleeding, or if it's nine French, we fit it in one of the main stem. But we have to remember that how we placed it, after replacing it, uh, to know how far it is by labeling, the, the depth of that um, uh, 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 blocker in the airway and see what number we ended with after we place it because it has markers on the side that can you can read uh, and you can get it in centimeters so you know where you place it and you can lock on it and tape on it so you can sign out to the next person uh, or to while you're transporting the patient to make sure that that label did not move out. Because it's very easy for that with any, if the patient lost his paralytic effect, to cough and pop that uh, blocker out of the airway. In another scenario, you can see if the patient stayed with the blocker overnight in the ICU after, uh, 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 after embolization done, that you get a call from the nurse at night saying the patient is setting. And they tried, you you will think that he's bleeding again. There's some scenarios that the blocker moved from the bleeding side to the good lung already and blocked the uh, other lung that has no bleeding because it's it moved from one place to another. In that case, you deflate the order it should be hit, the uh, bronchial blocker immediately and get a chest X-ray. So it's challenge, of course, but it needs, number one, documentation, how depth of that blocker was placed. Second thing, uh, the document also by doing an X-ray to know where it's sitting exactly after you place it. Third thing, uh, make sure that uh, it's always checked that it's inflated because after a couple or four hours usually that balloon uh, get uh, deflated and need to be frequently inflated. Uh, uh, For transportation, uh, it's important to label it maybe with a tape because you can easily see that tape if it's
0: moved from the edge of the locker of that blocker. So when we isolate the bleed, our general approach is to consult interventional radiology for bronchial artery embolization, and you know that's relevant because 90% of the lung bleeds originate from the bronchial arteries. However, let's say we have an endobronchial culprit, maybe a lesion in the trachea, or the bronchi, or the subsegmental bronchi. What is your favorite tool to stop the bleed, and why do you choose that tool? Uh, so, as you
1: mentioned, Abby, there's there's two different uh, lesions that that you, you are uh, or different mechanism of bleeding. One, that uh, the bleeding coming beyond your vision, you don't know where the bleeding coming from, or you know, but you can't control it by the tools that we're going to talk about. Or if you have an endobronchial lesion that's either oozing or has a direct bleeding, especially depends on the type of the, uh, of the tumor sometimes. For example, renal cell carcinoma tumors uh, that metastasize to the airway or carcinoid tumors can easily ooze and bleed more than other uh, other tumors so in that case using uh, tools such as coterie or uh, APC argon plasma coagulation and those scenarios are, are the best we have to keep in mind before using those tools that we have a good communication with our anesthesia colleagues that the FiO2 for the airway prior to using those tools are 40% or less in inspiratory and expiratory phase. Because as we know that the oxygen is a flammable gas and we can ignite that gas if it's more than that percentage. Uh, Of course, that's a challenge if the patient is hypoxic, but it's very important to remember that those tools can be used uh, only if the FIO2 less than 40%. Back to those tools, if the lesion depends on the type of the lesion, if it's something like fungoid and uh, and can be snared with coterie, maybe it's at the best because you can cauterize and remove that lesion at the same time. You can apply APC for superficial oozing lesions, or you can apply both techniques after coterie removal of, of that lesion and then apply the APC on the base uh, of that lesion after removing it. Uh, It's important to remember that also removing the clots from the airway uh, is important. Sometimes your suction can help you removing clots out, but most of the time you find difficulty removing it. At uh, At this scenario, when there's a clots blocking the airway, especially the normal lung where the clots formed and went to the other lung which is not bleeding and but now causing a mechanical blockage of the airway Uh, In that scenario a cryotherapy probe is the best uh, scenario for you in that scenario to be used by placing it on the clot apply the freezing when you see the clot froze you can pull it out uh, and that will help getting most of the clots out in a short time, especially if the patient in response to stress because of that blockage
0: of the airway with the clots. So as you mentioned, let's say the bleed is distal and we cannot visualize the bleeding. I have a two-part question. So one, do you have experience and do you have any preferred bronchoscopic installation of medications that you use to achieve hemostasis in these patients? And two, do you have experience or have you tried using stuff like spigots or valves for these patients to stop the bleed? So, uh, using uh, first the or valves, uh, it can
1: be used, but usually if the bleeding really severe uh, uh, and you can't even identify the main lobe that causing or the sub lobe that's causing the bleeding, uh, and I still use the blocker to protect that airway and, 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 and uh, stop the bleeding. If the ooze if it's oozing and I still see where it's coming from and I have time to to place that it's uh or the valve in that airway, uh it can be used. But to be honest with you, that's a very rare scenario to be happening. Using medications, as we know from the studies, like for cystic fibrosis, hemoptysis patients, or even for diffuse liver hemorrhage patients, transclemic acids were used as nebulizer with 500 milligrams every eight hours on those patients. That shows reduction of the amount of the hemoptysis. Um, using it topically, was reported in some cases, topically meaning use it through the bronchoscope, either with 500 milligrams or one gram through the lumen on the area that suspected the bleeding coming from. But we don't have an evidence that uh, endobronchial use spray or injection of tranexamic acid with the bronchoscope is, is useful. Only the data is uh, with nebulization.
0: And so as you mentioned, you know we have limited anecdotal evidence endoscopically using tranexamic acid or other medications for these bleeding. But you know, as you mentioned, we could use it through the bronchoscope or even uh, using it through the uh, the blocker itself, where you can still it it to the blocker. Maybe something that is an option that we could consider. So, do you obtain thoracic surgery consult in every patient, like with hemoptysis, or only in those patients that uh, you know either the endoscopic intervention or bronchial artery embolization fails, or you think are likely to fail? And what are the specific scenarios that you think surgical interventions can be considered useful? So uh,
1: that's a, a good question. Not every patient with hemoptysis is actually um, I consult thoracic surgery for. Uh, not because they, are, uh, they can't help, but more important that uh, because that, those kinds of hemoptysis uh, most of the time, manageable by the bronchial artery embolization. Some scenarios that thoracic surgeries are must uh, consult. Uh, for example, on cases where you have a, a fungal infection with like aspergilloma, that the fungal uh, fungal infection now already invaded locally multiple um, uh, blood vessels, and uh, as you mentioned, in those cases, um, uh, the the uh, intervention uh radiologists might not achieve the blockage or, or embolization of all feeding blood vessels to that area and in those scenarios the only way to protect the patient from frequent hemoptysis episodes or from fatal hemoptysis episode by if, if that if aspergilloma that for example invade larger blood vessel is by removing that And that scenario, for sure, the thoracic surgery is the go to person uh, to get that aspergilloma out. The other scenario, if you have localized tumor that's causing the problem and you know from the CAT scan where it's localized and also failed uh, to have the feeding blood vessel uh, embolized for that tumor, also the same thing, the thoracic surgery option should be on the table. Uh, But in general, uh, as those patients when i have patient i by the bronchoscopy already i localized the area where the bleeding coming from and also uh, i place the blocker this is the right person that you should go with the patient to ir right away because that's the best time that the bleeding still active you stopped it by uh, placing the the blocker from going to the good lung, you protect the airway, you clean the good lung. The patient is hemodynamically stable after you gave him the fluid blood and you protect the airway. This is the best time for the intervention, radiologist to intervene if the is still active and they can identify the most feeding blood vessel, which is most likely branching or a direct uh, feed from the bronchial artery.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, A.B. This has been a great learning experience for me, and I'm sure our listeners will find this very useful in their daily practice. So any closing comments? Just just, I I would like to remind everybody that uh,
1: preparation and uh, uh, for those bronchoscopy procedures are very critical. Make sure you have all your tools uh, prepared prior to the bronchoscope Bronchoscopy without having those uh, tools might aggravate the bleeding and then you lose more time finding them. For example, the blocker, the the Fogarty, anything that help or even have the skills ready to have the right ET tube on the patient prior to the bronchoscope in case you need to do single lung uh, intubation. Remember the rule of 40% or less of FiO2 if you are planning to use any of the cautery or heat uh, a therapy like APC on the airway and always prevention is your friend. So Always review the labs, reverse all the anti coagulation if you can, and also correct all coagulopathy and low platelets prior to your uh, intervention. That will save you and
0: save the patient uh, during the procedure. Great, thank you so much, and thank you for taking our time again to join us today. This brings to an end another episode of the ABIP podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on our YouTube channel to hear more about controversial topics in IP and expert opinions that will improve our daily practice.